So that gives you a basic picture of how the church grew and of how the faith came to be this enormous, sprawling institution covering so much of the world. How did these churches work? What were the practices going on in these Christian communities? Well, first and foremost, of course, there was baptism, the ritual immersion or cleansing in water when one enters the church, and there was the Eucharist, the shared meal of bread and wine, which is understood in some way to recall or represent Christ. So these are, it seems, fundamental and universal, and they go back to that early Jesus group, and they are everywhere that you see a Christian church. There was also some sort of basic shared creed, although it's not clear what much of the content was. There was some sort of basic creed involving faith in Christ and the belief that Christ will return for the final judgment and the resurrection. One of the earliest clues and insights we have about how these churches worked is an ancient document called the Didache, which in Greek just means the teaching or doctrine. And it seems it was written somewhere around the year 90 to 100, so around the same time that the Gospel of John was being written. And it was uh, penned, composed, and used mainly by Jews, by Jewish Christians in Syria. There is no sign at all in the Didache of any influence by Paul and Paul's ideas. So this is part of why the Didache is so significant, is that we can see that as crucial and as, as pivotal as Paul was, there were also important practices that were woven into the church early on in this more Jewish and Syrian community, apart from Paul. So as I said, by this point, the Christians had been cast out of the synagogues. So even if they still largely considered themselves Jews, they had to come up with their own system and rules for worship. So this Didache document, it has four main parts. Uh, first, there is a, a section called the Two Ways, which deals with ethics, how to live, uh, and how to uh, follow the, the sort of path of life rather than the path of death. And these ethics are mainly Jewish. They were probably penned by Jewish Christians. It also includes prayers that one should recite, including the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc., that Lord's Prayer probably was taken from the synagogues. It was probably a common Jewish prayer or something very close to it that these Jewish Christians knew from synagogue worship, but that they maybe adapted slightly and made important in church worship. It then contains a second section on rituals, baptism, fasting on certain days, and the Eucharist. Third part is on ministry, who leads and manages the church. And this section lays out the different responsibilities and authorities of apostles, many of whom were still around, so leaders and spreaders of the faith, prophets, right? So there's a place carved out here for charismatics, people who receive prophecy, bishops, the, the sort of managers of the church, and deacons, the sort of assistant managers of the church, which often meant those who would bring the Eucharist 
to those who couldn't. It probably started out as the people who would bring the Eucharist to prisoners or ill people or the elderly who, for whatever reason, couldn't come receive it in church. And then the fourth section of the Didache is a collection of apocalyptic prophecies describing the Antichrist, the sort of false savior or false messiah, who will appear before then the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And this is one of the texts that puts forward the notion of the church being the bride of Christ, the sort of pure, virginal uh, body that is ready and prepared for the appearance of Christ. So this Didache clearly is very important and revealing, and it had a great deal of influence, but it was responded to and accepted differently by different groups. Some, such as the church in Ethiopia, obtained the Didache and integrated it into their canon of scripture. It's considered holy text in the Ethiopian church. It also was often copied and referred to by church fathers, sort of leaders of the early church before Constantine, like Tertullian and Cyprian, and I'll, I'll mention them later. But they didn't necessarily, most of the Western church didn't necessarily treat it as sort of holy writ on a par with the Gospels or the Epistles of Paul. And it seems it was lost. No copy of it survived, and no one knew the full text of it until the 1870s, when a Greek Orthodox bishop found a surviving copy, and it was then published, and we can study it today as this important window into the early church. There also, as I said, was the formation of some kind of creed, and there was a sort of rough shared statement of faith in the churches in some form by about 180 AD. And again, we don't know exactly what it was. It hasn't survived, but it is referred to by various writers and church fathers, such as Irenaeus. They, they mention this creed. So there was something in place by the end of the second century, and this early creed probably was revised in some way into what we now know as the Apostles' Creed. There was the creation of a penitential system, and the penitential system is a set of rituals and practices to address the question of what do you do with people who sin after baptism. Baptism is supposed to represent the washing away of original sin, of this sort of inborn proclivity towards sin, and the preparation for, for then meeting Christ in the second coming. Well, what do you do with people who are baptized and then commit sins? And most particularly... Most urgently, what do you do with people who commit the ultimate sin of betraying the faith and then want to come back and still be part of the church? So this was the dilemma that was faced by many church leaders, but particularly it was, it was tackled by Cyprian, who was uh, a, a bishop of the city of Carthage in North Africa in the 200s. He was of Berber descent. And he was the bishop at this difficult time in the 250s, where the, the church and the, the, the Christians in Carthage had lived through the Decian persecution, that widespread persecution under Emperor Decius. And they had, some had died, but most had survived. And many people who had apostatized, who had given up the faith and agreed to worship Roman gods, wanted to come back. What do you do with them? Well, Cyprian came up with this process. He said, well, they should confess that they've committed this grievous sin. 
they should receive absolution, right? Because if you have faith in Christ, you're saved and absolved of your sins. So the church should give them absolution, should say, all right, you are, you are forgiven of these sins, but you should also do a penance. You should do some action to show your contrition, your regret for this sin. Once you have done that penance, then the church can give you the Eucharist again. You effectively rejoin the body of the church and are able to eat the Eucharistic bread once again. So this system set up by Cyprian is the beginning of what later scholars would call the penitential cycle, the cycle of baptism, sin, confession, penance, Eucharist, sin, confession, penance, Eucharist, right? Should sound familiar. There also was a great development of sermonizing and homiletics, right? Practices and methods for how leaders of the church should preach and teach in the church, Theology was brought to a new kind of level. So teachings and ideas about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, about sin and salvation, all of this could be developed in a sophisticated way, sometimes by very erudite and philosophically educated people, but then preached in a sort of accessible way, brought to a popular level, especially because so many of the Christians in these churches were were illiterate, and so the message had to be brought to them in an understandable way. And the first sort of great master of sermons and homilies was Origen, who was a scholar and priest in Alexandria, in the big city in Egypt. And he put forward the first collection of commentary and sermons, basically interpreting and preaching based on scriptures, based on received texts. And many of his sermons were collected into what you might call a book, a collection called First Principles. And Origen's First Principles maintained certain basic ideas. For one thing, free will. The theory that everyone ultimately chooses their actions and chooses whether they sin or not. And in principle... Everyone can be saved. Everyone has the chance, the opportunity to act rightly and to be saved and given eternal life. He insisted on a symbolic and allegorical reading of scripture. Right? It is not just literal facts like a chronicle, but when you read about things like, say, the creation of Adam, those are allegories for sort of mysterious metaphysical realities. And he put forward a ransom theory, which was fairly normal at the time, but not universal. A ransom theory of Christ. So the notion that the death of Christ was a sort of ransom that was paid to Satan and paid to the forces of evil in return for giving up Satan's power over the rest of humankind. So, so Christ sort of paid his own life as, as a price in return for human beings being freed and saved for eternal life. Origen, it seems, was arrested and tortured during the Decian persecutions in the year 250, but he survived, although he died reportedly a few years later, partly because his health was ruined by the torture to which he was subjected. And Origen is seen today as an important church father, an, an early leader and teacher of the church, but not as a saint. And that's partly because he, he put forward a lot of views and arguments about Christianity and 
Christian teachings, and some of them are controversial. Not everyone subscribes, say, to free will or the ransom theory. And so he has never been canonized. And you can see it in a way like similar to how today a judge can never be confirmed to the Supreme Court if they have had a long career and written many opinions. There's going to be something in there that's controversial and makes them ineligible. Now, also by Origen's time, uh, you know, he was preaching on the basis of scriptures, of writings that increasingly were seen as holy. And so over time, there was the formation of a canon, a sort of ne negotiated process by which certain writings and documents were taken to be authoritative and even sacred, and boundaries had to be drawn as to what was in this canon and what was not. So if we look early on at early documents, letters among Christians in the second century, there were occasional mentions of words of Jesus or memoirs of the apostles, possibly written collections of utterances of Jesus or accounts of the lives and careers of apostles like Paul and Peter. But they were not called scripture early on. It was only over time that people started to say these documents are sacred. The first person, it seems, to make an intentional effort to collect a set of sacred authoritative texts was a man named Marcion of Sinope, who was a wealthy shipmaster from Asia Minor who went to Rome and became prominent in the church, but controversial. And Marcion of Sinope argued for a total separation between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. He saw them as completely separate and opposed. In his view, the Jewish God was not the same as the God of Christ. The Jewish God was a sort of trickster or morally ambiguous or even evil God who was harsh and cruel, whereas the God of Christ was forgiving and was a completely separate entity. So he rejected all of Jewish law and Jewish scripture as invalid or even dangerous. And he tried to create his own canon or collection of authoritative texts, not alongside the Hebrew Bible, but replacing the Hebrew Bible. It included his own gospel, a gospel written by Marcion himself. But his opponents, he had many opponents who believed that the Jewish God and the God of Christ were the same God and that the Jewish scriptures still had some importance and were still valid, even if the New Testament in some way superseded the Old Testament. And so these opponents of Marcion then had to respond with their own canon, which would sit alongside and parallel and complement the Hebrew Bible. So this is the origin of what we now think of as the New Testament alongside the Old Testament. And it seems that another important church leader named Irenaeus, I'll mention him again later, he was the first to make a collection of four Gospels that should all be treated as sacred and authoritative as against Marcion's Gospel. We don't know much else about what this canon was through most of the first and second centuries, uh, even after the time of Marcion. It's, it's pretty mysterious. The details are, are unknown. The biggest clue that we have is a, an incomplete document called the Muratorian Fragment. And this surviving fragment was found in Milan in Italy. And we don't know how old it is, but it might be from as early as the late 100s, so a generation or so after this 
controversy around Marcion of Sinope. The Muratorian fragment is written in poor Latin, probably translated very inexpertly from Greek. So it's likely that the original was in Greek, maybe from an Eastern church, and then it was translated and copied over in, into Latin in Italy. And the fragment lists out very brief and very briefly comments on the texts that were had been read out in church. So hence the ones that were seen as proper and authoritative to, to teach on in church. And we don't know where, but it's reasonable it might have been Antioch, which was clearly a very important Eastern church, the origin of many of these central teachings and practices. So the Muratorian fragment accepts four Gospels, presumably the ones that we see in the canon today, also the Epistles of Paul, the Epistle of Jude, two Epistles of John, although we don't know which two, and the Book of Revelations, which is significant because there are many churches that later down the road didn't accept the Book of Revelations as canon, but the Moratorian fragment does include it. Also, the Apocalypse of Peter, another apocalyptic book of prophecy that is not part of our canon today, and a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which has kind of ambiguous status and is not seen as canonical by many churches today. So there are things in the fragment that are accepted that are, that are part of the common Christian canon today and some that are kind of borderline, that some churches accept and some don't. The Moratorian fragment specifically rejects the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Epistle of James, which I read from, and First and Second Peter. So from these facts, we can suppose that whoever wrote this Moratorian fragment had a certain sort of point of view, which was more apocalyptic. It includes the apocalyptic writings, not just of the Book of Revelations, but also the Apocalypse of Peter. And it's more skeptical of Jewish ethics and adherence. It puts more of a distance from the sort of Jewish Christian belief in, in good conduct uh, because it excludes Hebrews, First and Second Peter, and especially that controversial epistle of James. Then from much later, there is a note by another church leader named Eusebius who lived during the time of Constantine, who was able to see this remarkable moment of legalization of Christianity. And Eusebius wrote a short note where he tried to lay out the boundaries, again, of what should be counted as canon. And Eusebius includes the four Gospels, again, and the Epistles of Paul, which seem to be just the, the absolute core standard that all churches must have accepted. It rejects the Acts of Paul, a book called The Shepherd or Shepherd of Hermas. It rejects the Epistles of Barnabas and the Apocalypse of Peter. Most of these books are lost. We don't know what this Shepherd of Hermas said. We can guess. Then, uh, then he specifically says there are many books that are disputed. And he's very honest and forthright about this. There are many books that some churches accept, but others don't, and they're ambiguous. And so in this disputed category, he includes Jude, James, 2 Peter, the book of Revelations, the gospel of the Hebrews, which is another book totally lost. We don't know what it said. And a gospel of Thomas. And I'll mention this again later. What is this gospel of Thomas? It's not entirely clear, but it might be the Coptic gospel of Thomas, which was composed in Egypt. 
So Eusebius is very upfront here that there was still ambiguity and fluidity about what counted as canon or scripture. But it seems that not long after, the emperor Constantine called for the creation of 50 copies of scriptures. So these might have been sort of early Bibles based on whatever Constantine or his church accepted as authoritative before he died. So these were ordered in 331, and that might not sound like a lot, but 50 copies of an entire collection of scriptures was an enormous amount of work and resources in this age before the printing press. So this was a kind of critical moment now where the, the copying of sacred texts was becoming a central part of the church. Okay, so now the final subject I want to address is really the reason why this canon of scriptures was created at all, which is the fact that there was so much controversy and disagreement about the central beliefs of Christianity and how the faith should be taught, even at this late date. Now, if you talk to a historian of Christianity, something that they have to explain is that for many generations, for many centuries, Christian scholars assumed that the central teachings of Christianity were clear and consistent and unified at the origin, and then splits and schisms happened later. But today, in the past hundred years or so, it's become clear, and it's now the consensus among scholars, including those who are devoted Christians themselves, it is the accepted consensus that Christianity was highly ambiguous and various right from the beginning, and that over time, churches had to work out consensus and try to create agreement. And eventually, something like an orthodox consensus was assembled. So things had to go, you could say, from, from variety to uniformity, or they had to go, you, you might also say, from variety to a sort of bottleneck point of shared agreements before then splitting into variety again. And the churches we see today mostly come out of that bottleneck moment in the 4th and 5th centuries when, it, with great pains, an orthodox consensus had to be worked out and negotiated. A lot of this variety and disputation came from the fact, as I said, that there was continuing tension between apostolic and charismatic authorities. Not only did people think different things about God and Christ and salvation, they were getting their beliefs from totally different kinds of sources. So we have to talk about some of the many failed or suppressed ideas and failed and suppressed groups that had periods of flourishing in the early church and eventually failed. So what were some of these failed views or schools of thought? Well, one was adherence to Torah people who believed that being a Christian also necessarily meant being a Jew and observing the laws of Moses and of the Torah. That was a common assumption among many early Christians. And the first, the earliest Christians were Jews and saw themselves as Jews, although Gentiles came in very quickly as well. But even as some Gentiles converted and joined the church, there were still many who believed that they had to become Jews in order to be Christians in the church. And one of the big controversies that really roiled the early church 
was over the rite of circumcision. Does a man, a Gentile man, when he becomes a Christian, does he need to be circumcised and fully undergo the process of becoming Jewish in order to be a Christian? And Paul argued very strenuously against this. You know, you, again, you can, you can look through all his writings and he repeatedly says circumcision is not necessary. It's only an outward symbol of faith, and it is faith that makes you saved. Nonetheless, there was, it seems, a group that lasted for a long time, for probably several hundred years in the East, particularly in Syria, called Ebionites. And it seems these Ebionites were Christians who continued to adhere to the Torah and tried to live by Jewish law. They also put an enormous emphasis on charity and sacrifice for the poor and living among the poor. They took vows of poverty and they were vegetarian. They taught that Christ and John the Baptist were vegetarian. And it seems that they also you know, put a great importance on John the Baptist as a leader of and teacher of their faith. In terms of their understanding of Christ theologically, they were adoptionist. So this means that they thought that Jesus was a human and that he had lived, been born and lived as, as a human, basically metaphysically the same as other humans. But he attained a close relationship with God and eventually was adopted by God as a son. So he, he attained this special relationship with God. And certain early Christian writings, particularly the Gospel of Mark, seem to reflect this same sort of basic point of view, adoptionism, that Christ was you know, born and raised as a man, but he became a son of God. The Ebionites, it seems, were pushed out. They were opposed by both Jews and Christians, and they ended up mainly east of the Jordan River in the lands of Syria or Assyria. And probably over time, they died out or were absorbed into the Christian church as Christianity grew. And probably they were connected in some way to the fate of the John the Baptist group. So remember, John the Baptist was a popular, impactful preacher, preaching a message of a coming judgment and baptism before Jesus. And he had followers. What happened to them? Well, probably a lot of them went over and joined Christianity. Some maybe did not. Some, it seems, probably fed into what we now know as the Mandean religion, which is a whole different story unto itself. But a lot of them probably, when they became Christian, they became Ebionites, and they brought with them this great emphasis and interest in John the Baptist. But eventually, this group died out or was persuaded to move over to a different form of Christianity, more similar to Paul, to Paul's Christianity. A second point of view, which probably was not as organized and was on the opposite extreme in terms of how they understood Christ, was docetists. So docetism is a word, it means appearance, and it, it's a word for those who believed that Jesus was not a human at all, that he was a purely spiritual being, that he did not have a real human body, but he just appeared. He, he, there was an illusion or appearance that he had a human body, but he was in fact purely spiritual. And we know docetists existed and may have been pretty widespread in the second century because they were criticized and attacked by church leaders. We have the writings of people arguing against docetism. So docetism 
was increasingly rejected and suppressed in the general, you could say, sort of forming mainstream of the church. And you can see this vague, gradual process in the 100s, 200s, 300s, where these different various uh, extreme views about Christ, adoptionism, like the Ebionites, docetism, declined, and some sort of middle compromise position became prevalent. But docetism still didn't go away for a long time. And instead, it fed into a whole movement, a whole wing of Christianity, which we now call Gnosticism. And some people at the time called themselves Gnostics. So what is Gnosticism? Well, it's this school of thought that was uh, common among Christians, particularly in Egypt. That seems to have been the main center of Gnosticism. And it was a form of Christianity that was quite different and was influenced a great deal by Neoplatonic and mystical thought. The Gnostics understood Christ as divine, a sort of representative or messenger of God. And they saw Christ as offering salvation, not so much from sin as from ignorance. So the main conflict in Gnosticism is between knowledge and ignorance, and the quest of the Christian should be to attain gnosis, sort of direct, mystical, experiential knowledge of God. And hence, the Gnostics really emphasized the sayings and teachings of Christ, seeing him as kind of a, a, a mystical, philosophical teacher, more than emphasizing his suffering and death and resurrection, which, of course, the Pauline Christians believed was the, the core of Christian belief. We don't know a lot in detail about what Gnostics believed, and for many centuries, scholars had to simply extrapolate what they thought based on the writings of Irenaeus, who was an opponent and who criticized and condemned their views. And you had to kind of back-engineer, okay, what, what did these Gnostics think? And they were very mysterious, really until the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, a set of Gnostic texts that were hidden and buried in Egypt and rediscovered in 1945 by a shepherd in Egypt. So the Nag Hammadi Library, when it came to light, it re revealed a whole different form of Christianity that is based on the idea that the body and the mind or the body and the soul are completely separate and that through mystical knowledge, contemplation, insight, the soul has to be freed from the body. And the body and the physical world in general is evil, it's imprisoning, and it, you have to liberate yourself from it. And Christ was a sort of mystical teacher to lead people to that spiritual freedom. So the Nakamadi Library contains a whole bunch of texts. Some of them have become famous, uh, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Judas. But those all come from later, from the 200s, 300s, and it seems probably the earliest text in that collection is what we call the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, which seems like it was written maybe around the year 100, so roughly around the same time as the Gospel of John that we see in the Bible. And the Coptic Gospel of Thomas does not contain any stories about actions or miracles or the suffering or resurrection or anything like that. It's just things Christ reportedly said. So I'll read some of just the beginning of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas to see what it reveals about this different branch of Christianity. 
So it begins, quote, These are the hidden words that the living Jesus spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote them down. And he said, Whoever finds the meaning of these words will not taste death. So there's this escape from mortality if you get that mystical insight into the secrets of Jesus' teaching. And it goes on, Jesus says, If those who lead you say to you, Look, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, It is in the sea, then the fishes will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you and outside of you. So this is a very mystical you know, way of understanding Christ, right? The kingdom of God is not something that's going to happen in the world. It's internal. It's purely spiritual. But it's not entirely different from what you might see, say, in the Gospel of John, right, which was written about the same time. There, there are, there, there's a spectrum, right? And it goes on, quote, When you come to know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will realize that you are the children of the living Father. But if you do not come to know yourselves, then you exist in poverty, and you are poverty. Jesus says, Do not worry from morning to evening and from evening to morning about what you will wear. His disciples said, When will you appear to us, and when will we see you? Jesus said, When you undress without being ashamed, and take your clothes and put them under your feet like little children and trample on them, then you will see the Son of the Living One, and you will not be afraid. So, you know, ostensibly on the surface, Jesus is saying, uh, clothes, they don't matter. Uh, take them off. Uh, but obviously you should see there's, there's some mystical level of meaning here. And the clothes presumably mean the body, right? When you are ready to put aside your physical body and free yourself to become a sort of unclothed spiritual entity, then you will see the living one. You will have some kind of communion with God. So Gnosticism also, it seems, it was pretty strong until the 4th and 5th centuries after Christianity becomes an imperial state religion and you now have serious firepower, you might say, backing up the mainstream orthodox consensus of the church and that imperial power eventually is used to suppress Gnosticism and that's why you do not see it surviving in any significant way past about the 5th century. Okay, a last controversy we should know about, or, well, another controversy we should know about, although it comes late in the game, in the 4th century, is around the Donatists. So the Donatists were another sort of breakaway group, although they considered themselves Orthodox Christians. They were a distinct group that believed that church sacraments and rites, such as baptism or the Eucharist, were only valid if they were performed by clergy that were faultless and without sin. And invalid sacraments performed by a, a priest or bishop in a state of sin were ineffective. So you could say they were the most purest about the clergy. And this was a very live, important controversy in the 300s. Why? Well, it happened in the wake of the Diocletianic persecution, the sort of big wave of persecution in the early 300s. There was a comparatively lenient governor of North Africa, in, which includes Carthage, this important place, the same place where Cyprian was when he invented confession and penance. Well, this lenient governor, 
he had allowed leaders of the church a sort of easy way out. He had said that if they hand over Christian scriptures to the imperial authorities, that then shows that they've repudiated the faith and they can be forgiven and not punished. So some church leaders did this. They handed over Christian writings to the governor. And this was bitterly resented by many Christians, especially those of the lower classes, who resented these kind of upper-class elite bishops and priests and saw them as weak traitors who had betrayed the faith. And this led to a bitter split when in the year 311, when these persecutions were starting to wind down, a traitor bishop, someone who had done this act of handing over Christian writings, he was elected as bishop of Carthage. And this caused a split. And those who didn't accept this, they split off and elected their own rival claimant, whom they saw as free of this sin and shame of apostasy. So this church in North Africa, by this time, it did have a system of confession and penance. It was possible for people who had committed a sin, even betraying the faith, to come back and confess and do penance and be accepted once again. But this breakaway group that we call the Donatists, they maintained that even if someone did do confession and penance and was allowed back into the church, they were still disqualified from leadership. The leaders of the church should not come from among these tainted traitors. So this dispute was fought out over several years. There was a serious schism, and I won't get into the details, but eventually St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, took up this dispute, and he took up the cause of what we now consider the orthodox consensus, the idea that you don't have to be morally pure in order to be clergy, and you don't have to be morally pure in order for sacraments to be valid. But so many of these, you know, central ideas of the church that we now kind of take for granted in Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they grow out of these disputes and controversies. Okay, so lastly, there is another important offshoot group that made it, in a sense, that wasn't stamped out and had an even greater impact, and that's the Montanists. And the Montanists played a role in the development of Orthodox Christology and what would become the doctrine of the Trinity. So who were they and how did this happen? Well, the Montanists were a distinct group in Asia Minor, in that Greek area that's now Turkey. And they emerged in the late 100s. And the Montanists believed in new prophecies and new revelations. They believed that that revelations from God had not stopped with Christ or the Pentecost or Paul, but they continued. And they had leaders who actually had prophetic visions. They were inspired in different ways by the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelations and these, these texts that had been taken into the canon. But they were led particularly by three charismatics, two women and a man. And the man happened to have been named Montanus, so that's why we call them Montanists. But it was two women and a man. They practiced gender equality. Men and women had equal status and power in this church group. And they venerated and put great importance on the Holy Spirit, right? this sort of breath 
or palpable presence of God, which was related to the paraclete, as it's referred to in Greek in the New Testament, and also the Jewish belief in the Shekhinah, the dwelling or presence of God. And the Montanists believed that the Holy Spirit could clear up ambiguities in Scripture. There was a lot of confusion and disagreement about church doctrine and about how to understand the scriptures. And they believed that the, the delivery of visions and prophecies from the Holy Spirit could resolve these problems. And this group was widespread, but many of them lived at a village called Pepuza, which they made into a kind of utopia, and where they believed that the heavenly Jerusalem would materialize at the end times. So they were sort of Again, they were preparing for an imminent end times. Other Christians largely saw them as heretical, and you know, different church fathers argued against them and tried to suppress Montanism. But they also did attract influence, and most particularly, they made an impression upon a learned Christian writer and intellectual named Tertullian, who once again, like Cyprian and, and so many others, was in North Africa, uh, lived and worked in Carthage in the early 200s, and Tertullian defended the idea of new prophecy, the notion that, that prophecies from God could continue. He was a Christian apologist. He wrote texts arguing against pagans and defending Christian teachings. He also wrote texts arguing against Gnostics. So he was very much part of this effort to spread the faith and create an Orthodox consensus. But he supported the Montanists, and he made the argument that God was manifested in three persons, or three aspects, I should say. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in doing this, he was partly taking up a Greek idea that was already around, the notion that there was God the Father, the, the God that you see in the Old Testament, the Creator, the Lawgiver. And then there was also the Son, which is Christ. And that the Father and the Son were homoousios, or of the same essence, or same substance. That in, that in a way, Christ was not, he was God, Christ was God, but he was not the same God that you hear talked about in Genesis and Exodus. He was a different person, but his essence was also God. They shared the same essence, and they were somehow in this way equal. Well, Tertullian tried to put forward this same sort of idea, but in Latin, right? Homoousios is a Greek phrase. It's, there's really no way to translate it exactly into Latin. And Latin Christians generally just found it bizarre and weird and meaningless. Well, what is homoousios? Is, is Christ God or is he not God? Well, Tertullian made the effort to sort of transfer this idea into Latin in a way that Latin speakers could understand. And he furthermore integrated in then the Holy Spirit, which was so important to the Montanists. And he argued that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all connected and were in some way the same thing. Although they didn't operate like one person, they were like three persons, but they were somehow the same thing. And he used this phrase in Latin, una substantia tres persone. One substance, three persons. And this word persona in Latin, it, it doesn't just mean person the way we use that word in English. Rather, it 
it tended to mean a character and it was used in theater. You can see it as a kind of theater metaphor. A persona is a character or literally it's the mask that an actor wears in order to take on the role of a character and represent that character. So this was a very clever metaphor to use because you can think of it when you're seeing a play, you might see one actor play multiple roles. And on one level of reality, you're saying that's the same person because you know it's the same actor. But on another level of reality, on the fictive reality of the play, they're three different people. They're not the same at all. And the same actor can switch from one character to another. So this was the reasoning he used to say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are they're all God, but they're also three different persons or characters. So this idea eventually did gain increasing acceptance in the West. It was a way of squaring the circle. This notion, and he used this word trinitas, trinity, threeness, it gained more and more acceptance in the late 200s and the 300s. And it seemed to get over this problem of what is Christ. Christ is God, but he's not just God, God. <laughs> he's a person or a character that also is God. He's part of this trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But obviously there's a lot that's left unresolved. Even if you accept this idea of una substantia tres personae, there are still questions and ambiguities about, well, is but then is Christ still a person? In what sense is he a person? How can he be a person? How can he be human and God at once? And it also left unresolved the relations among the three persons. Are they all equal? Are they all equally important? Can they all do the same things? Is there a hierarchy? Is one more important than the others? And later on, I won't get into this, but later on there were splits and disputes over, uh, is the Father supreme? And the Son, Christ, is subordinate? Or are they equal? Is the Father eternal, but the Son came into being later and hence is derived from the Father? Or are they both eternal? Okay, we won't get into that. But you can see how this idea of Trinity, it, it helped people and it seemed to clarify things in certain ways, but there were still unresolved questions. Okay, so finally, how were all these disputes worked out? Well, more and more over time, as, as the church grew and as people wanted to settle these disputes, little by little, poles of authority had to form. You, people had to first come to agreement about, well, who judges and who decides? Who do you turn to if you have a question or a dispute to work out who's correct? And how can the church function as a unified organization? And in order for that to happen, more and more people had to accept that there were certain people or bodies in the church with higher authority. Number one, there was Rome. Right? So Rome was still the capital of the empire. It had a great prestige. And so the bishop of Rome was seen as having a special role, a preeminence, by many people, especially Christians in the West, in the Latin-speaking West. If you look in the canon of scriptures, there are what you what have been called the Petrine claims. So verses in scripture that seem to give a special status to Peter. And particularly there's a line in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, Simon, you are my rock, right? You are Peter, you are my rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So there's seems to be a moments where 
Peter gets this special leadership role. And Peter, he traveled around a great deal, but ultimately he ended up in Rome, and that's where he died, as Bishop of Rome. So his successors as bishops of Rome could claim to have a special apostolic authority. And it seems in the early 100s, Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, another very important church in the East, he said the bishop of Rome is understood as, quote, presiding in the region of the Romans. So maybe not there where he was in Antioch, but at least over in the West, in the region of the Romans, where Latin is the main language, the bishop of Rome is seen as the leader. And there were instances in the 100s and the 200s where the Bishop of Rome would sometimes intervene to settle disputes going on in other sees or dioceses, like, say, Carthage. So the fact that the Bishop of Rome might do this, did this mean that he was seen as having a kind of primacy? Maybe, right? But it was, it was still, you know, very ambiguous. Also, at the same time, there was sometimes exercise of authority and leadership by other bishops in other important cities, such as Antioch and Alexandria, who would do things like go out and consecrate the other bishops in other towns and cities. So if the bishop of Antioch goes out to, let's say, Edessa, for example, and consecrates the bishop in Edessa, that gesture sort of signifies that the bishop of Antioch is preeminent. So these sort of important bishops in important cities came to be called metropolitan, and the, the cities were called metropolitan sees, right? So Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, those were very important ones. Also in the late 100s, an important dispute came up, a dispute over how to set the date of the holiday of Easter when you observe the, the resurrection of Christ. And in the early church, this was the central miracle and this was the central holiday. It was Easter. Well, in the Eastern church, where Greek or Syriac were the main languages, it was customary to simply observe Easter on Passover. Right? In, in, in the scriptures, the crucifixion and the resurrection were connected to Passover. So you'd celebrate it on Passover, according to the Hebrew calendar. Well, in the West, it was more common instead to recalculate the date using the Roman calendar and to make sure that it fell on a Sunday, which was understood to be the holy day, the Sabbath day. So how do you settle this? Well, eventually the Romans prevailed, right? So it seems that the, the church in Rome, the bishop of Rome, and his supporters in the West were pulling more and more weight by this time, and they were able to win this particular dispute about the date of Easter. So, you know, we may not care about that sort of weird dispute today, but it was a sort of early test of who would be, you know, head honcho in the church. But then, then, there was the emergence of a major new see with the creation of Constantinople by the Emperor Constantine a massive new capital in the East that is deeply Christian from its beginnings. So the Bishop of Constantinople immediately has a tremendous status and prestige, and he eventually comes to be called the Patriarch, the sort of father ruler. And he's based in, you know, what was often referred to as the New Rome. So these sort of ambiguities and controversies about who's in charge, they take on a whole new freight now that there's this immediate kind of rivalry between Rome and Constantinople. 
Well, all of this was at least temporarily put aside to make way for the Ecumenical Council at Nicaea in 325. And this council, it has this great prestige and wide support because it's a gathering of representatives of so many churches, and it's this great chance to hammer out some kind of agreement. It also has the prestige of the emperor himself. And the main issue that this council had to tackle was, what do we say about Jesus Christ? Was he a divine being? Was he a man? Was he fathered by God? Was he adopted by God? What does this mean? It, if we imitate him, are we imitating a fellow human being? Or, or are we trying to imitate God? W what does this mean? So they were able to work out at least a draft of a shared creed, which would lay out how Christians should teach and preach about God, including about Christ. And it was probably based some on the Apostles' Creed, this sort of widely circulating creed statement that was already around. But it was elaborated with more detail, aimed at hopefully solving these disputes over Christology. What is the nature of Jesus Christ? And it was laid out in a Trinitarian form. So it really enshrines this idea of the Trinity as fundamental to how you approach God. So I'll read out to you the, this, what was probably the agreed-upon version of the Nicene Creed created by the Council of Nicaea. And again, we don't know exactly for certain what the wording was because it was later revised at another council at Constantinople. So what we have is that revised version. But that was many years later. We won't worry about that. So what was this creed laid out at Nicaea. Well, it was in Greek, but this is probably a pretty good approximation of what it said in English. We believe, or I believe, and <laughs> Eastern churches customarily say we, Western churches say I, so there's a little difference there whether you see it as a collective profession of belief or an individual profession of faith. But it says roughly, we or I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, and in Greek it says homoousios, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So, you know, just trying to lay out here as clearly as possible. He's really God, but he was made man. He was incarnated. And that now is considered one of the central miracles of Christianity as well, that God became a human being. And in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> okay, so, you know, like, last but not least, this little note, and, and we also believe in the Holy Spirit, right? And for that, again, we can largely thank the Montanists, those charismatic leaders, and Tertullian. Okay, so it puts forward this notion of Jesus as the literal son Right? And 
when when the Jesus group back in the first century, when they said Jesus is the Son of God, it's not entirely certain. Did they mean Son as in servant? Did they mean Son as in representative? Well, by the time Nicaea works out this creed, they're saying he is begotten by God, right? That's the same as a man begets his son, and also the Holy Spirit. And, and you must affirm belief in all of these three in order to be fully accepted and to have baptism and be a member of the church. And th this is so critical. Again, you can see this as a bottleneck moment, right? There had been confusion, there had been disagreement, but eventually this was hammered out and most churches subscribed to some version of this creed, and most churches that exist today still subscribe to some version of the Nicene Creed and those central teachings, but not all. There were some churches, especially to the East, that were just not part of this conversation because of politics, because of geographic distance, and they could form their own beliefs that went off in a slightly different direction from the Nicene consensus. But that is where I will leave off. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to hear all of my materials, including my latest on astrology, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. And I will also include links to my previous lectures on the background on the New Testament and the historical Jesus. Thank you.